0: Jordan B. Peterson. Um, He's probably one of the most famous intellectuals in the world now. He has, um, he's a clinical psychologist. He taught at Harvard and then at the University of Toronto where he's tenured. Um, He wrote the books Maps of Meaning. Maps of Meaning is like a Jungian kind of inspired book where he talks about everything in the world and the universe as being archetypal and whatever. And And that was really theoretical and, you know, a little bit, uh, what's the word, soft. But then he wrote the bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, which was completely practical and, you know, age-old psychological concepts, many of which you and I will agree with. And now he's writing a book, a sequel to that, because it became an international bestseller called 12 More Rules for Life, a QED to the first book. Uh, He also wrote the introduction to the updated 2020 version of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. Jordan Peterson, I mean, he was pretty well known in the academic circles, but he he rose to prominence because of his unwillingness to act in accordance with uh, Bill C-16, which is a Toronto mandate that compels professors, people in businesses to call all people by their preferred pronouns and then failure to do so results in fines or jail time even for continued offenses. Um, Peterson says, I have no, he's never had any problem calling people by the preferred pronouns, especially if it's in earnest. Instead, he was opposed to the compelled speech aspect. But we're not gonna talk about that. It's just a little background about who he is and- the So he became of,
1: a kind of a non-PC guy.
0: Exactly, a free speech and a warrior non-PC guy. he a an
1: image guy. of being a retro around male type issues.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, So he became famous in earnest and to his liking, uh, you know, he manufactured this a little bit. I mean, that gave him a little jump. People knew who he was. But public opinions were initially split between conservatives and liberals, like a lot of other things. So he won half the crowd that was watching at that point. Um, Most conservatives seen them as one of him. But it turns out he'd been recording all of his lectures for years um, and they're on YouTube and speaks very carefully. He's a very brilliant guy and a really nuanced perspective on just about everything. He's all over the political spectrum. He's a truth seeker, really. Um, you might agree or not agree with any thing, any one thing that he says, but he's given it his best to try to discern ground truth about things. Being that he was all the news right now, um, millions of people started watching his YouTube videos to see what he was all about. So he figured, okay, I'll I have these videos, but they're all college lectures. Maybe not everyone wants to watch those. So he thought, I'll use that viewership to give people some practical, psychological advice as well as like theoretical, um, you know, wisdom that he could impart. And that was really helpful to building him up. Not, you know, all of a sudden tens of millions more than that were watching him and talking about him. Um, and a lot of his advice that he put newly put on YouTube was, it turned out to be you know, kind of de facto. I don't know if he knew for sure he was talking to these people, but the people who thrived on it and really liked his psychological advice and musings are the kind of people who you and I talk about a lot and who AOC is worried about, which tend to be you know, people in inner cities or people in Appalachia, and a lot of them male and impoverished and lack education and who are trying to put themselves back together or live in this world. So that's what inspired his book 12 rules for life so what does it have to do with addiction and what does it have to do with the standard stories that were that everybody can't help but tell um, even when they're brilliant people who should know better peterson doesn't talk much about addiction but he's dealt with a lot of you know he deals with people who have addictions um, in his clinical work and he has a lot of practical insights about them one being uh, since we talked about trauma you know His perspective on trauma really is that, like us, that, okay, a trauma's happened, so what? Are you, I mean, you can't magically go back and make it not happen. You can't give somebody a laboratory and make them forget about it. I mean, the practical thing to do is use that experience to build on your present and your future. So that's one thing that we might – let's leave that aside for now. In terms of addiction, he says similar things that we do. Addictions aren't limited to drugs. Solving addiction problems is much more than just abstinence or just living by a series of prohibitions like can't do this drug can't see these people. It's about expanding your life space. Um, I have a note in here that he's never mentioned you directly but I've seen t- t- videos and read things that he's written and I have to, I have to imagine that he's at least aware of you and probably some of his ideas are inspired by things that you've written. I have to look closer to see if he cited you anywhere. Um, from all of this, he actually created a program. It's like LPP. It's like Diet LPP, which is called the Future Authoring Program or the Self Authoring Program or something like that. And it's a suite of programs that helps people. There's three different ones. You write about your past, write about your present, write about the future. And it's all in one. And it's basically like our. We do that story. in the
1: LPP. <laughs>
0: right. Exactly. His is not coach led or support or anything like that, but it is just giving people a little guidance about how they might write their prologue, how they might talk about what their experiences are now, and then really help people set goals. And, you know, it's probably pretty effective and he's sold a lot of it. And, but it's nothing I've gone and looked at it. And our, our partner Dahi in Ireland, I've had him jump on and look at it too. It's um, psychologically relevant and probably does help people, but it's nothing like our program, but still that captures the spirit of where his mind's at. But even though he has all those sort of brilliant and practical ideas, he has some really incomplete or sometimes bizarre or strange views about addiction as well. So, for instance, he said that you know, when asked about it, he'll say alcohol is addictive because people uh, develop physical dependence on it. And once they have that tolerance, well, then it turns into a destructive cycle because they need more uh, to get that feeling out of it and so on and so forth. People
1: can't resist throwing those eggs in the those in the fire
0: has to do and you know to his it's funny he's a critical thinker and everything else he'll look beyond the literature if the literature seems like it's not making sense but he can't you know this is one of those things it's a staple so he just takes it well it's like the
1: other week we talked about kurt anderson being the most brilliant guy right and rejecting superstition And then he doesn't believe that George W. Bush was allowed to quit drinking on his own. He decided he was at a family dinner and he embarrassed himself. He didn't fall down. He made some inappropriate comments and he told his wife, well, I'm going to quit drinking. And that was so unbelievable to uh, Anderson. He said, well, that's, that's called denial in AA and that's why he bombed Iraq. Or likewise, David Brooks, another brilliant man, he announced to Sally Satella and of all people, and Scott Lilienfeld, well, of course, addicts can never quit. And Sally, you know, in, in the 32nd intermission, she said, well, that's not true. Most of them do quit, but then they just went on. And, and as I said, if we if we talk to David Brooks next week, he still probably leave the same thing. You yeah. can't break down these ideas <clears throat> while we're talking about something chemical it takes control of your brain, unlike food or sex or love, all of which take place in your brain, too. And so
0: ergo, you have to believe all those addiction myths. So when it comes to trauma, he said, you know, his advice is let's use that as fuel. Now you have a perspective. And you can use that perspective to know a little bit more about the world around you and what it's capable of and what you're capable of and move forward. And when it comes to addiction, he always says, well, addiction's more than just not, you know, overcoming addiction is more than just not doing something or, you know, not drinking it's you have to build up your life and, you know, repair the infrastructure of your life. And so he even created a program, but he still, as you say, can't help but to turn to that really simple way of describing uh, the cycle of you know, a drug experiences. He talks about cocaine the same way. He has a few different lectures where he talks about cocaine being addictive because of, you know, dopamine, 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 you know. Stuff Carl is, said that he was
1: drummed into his head in the 1990s.
0: Exactly. And which
1: Nora Volka, up until about 2010, she said it's all about the dopamine. She doesn't say that anymore. Nora Volka, Nora Volko sounds like me now when, you know, when you read her blog post, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, we're going to have an addendum where we talk about how America has been sold the lie of genetics of addiction, which we're going to put on my YouTube channel, but it's
0: linked to everything we're talking about. Mm. So what I just told you about Peterson's beliefs, it's potted, but it captures the spirit of what I'm trying to get across. His beliefs and the way he talks about all of these things, from the practical to the brilliant to the sort of misled, like I just said, map on to his own experience pretty well. And so now we have him as a case study. Peterson has a history of depression that he talks about and hyper anxiety and suicidality. Um, he, He talks partly about being from Saskatchewan and having cold winters and nobody around and seemingly little purpose so he does talk a little practically about why he was depressed, but he also talks a lot about how it's uh, genetic and and neurobiological kind of a thing. So he rose to fame and began doing these speaking tours around his book, 12 Rules for Life. And he developed, he said, a lot of anxiety because on one hand, he was being, you know, he was getting all the death threats that you could imagine, like AOC and he didn't know what people how people were going to respond, but he walked down the street or recognized him and it was just a lot for him all at once. you know it went from a guy that's just a pretty smart professor that people around the area know him and people at conferences might know him, but nobody else to every you know, he was signing autographs on the street every time he walked down or someone might give him threats, so he said that gave him a ton of anxiety and um but he wanted to pursue what he was doing and he he had a little uh, <laughs> help from benzodiazepines. But she said he took benzodiazepines, I think it was colotipine, and it really helped him. He took a pretty low dose and he felt pretty good on that. So he wanted to keep doing what he was doing. He didn't exactly, he probably didn't take his own advice and do his own uh, self-authoring suite, which he could have. But given that everything was happening so quick, it worked.
1: Well, he might have done them together a little bit. I mean, maybe. he was giving the speeches, he was expanding
0: himself and he was using chemical assistance. That's, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I mean. He used it, he used drugs to his benefit. Um, but the, but keep in mind that he's not, that is true. I mean, it, from my perspective, he was giving all these lectures and he wanted to keep doing them. And he was felt like, that's oh, difficult to do them and drugs gave him some benefit. So, I mean, who doesn't do that? You use drugs for a reason. In his mind, I think, he's already putting the story together that um, I'm trying to live my purpose, but something's keeping me from doing it. It might partly be my, you know, this depression that I have a history of. And he's got this little, like, neurochemical theory going on. So to him, the benzodiazepines were medicine to help him with this ailment that he has while he's trying to pursue his purpose.
1: Benzodiazepines were developed as a medicine for whatever that's worth, but, you know, as you opioids are used as medicines and they're used by people who decided they wanted to use them as medicines, but they didn't Bothered to get
0: a, but he had a prescription. So he's already taken himself down a story, you know, already painted a narrative about himself that he's a medical patient at this point, not a guy who's using drugs for some benefit. So whatever, what, maybe it's true, maybe not, but you can see that how it all pans out. I... I was thinking about whether to mention this or not, but his daughter, Michaela Peterson, is also the um, purveyor of this weird fad diet that she claims really helped her. She had a lot of medical issues and digestive issues, and she was pretty much crippled for the first 20 years of her life. And I don't know what else she did, but one of the things that she did, she changed about her diet, was she started eating only meat, salt, and water. It's all that she eats. No vegetables, no nothing else, and she says it's great, and she feels better now. Um, I don't know, but he started doing. Yo, me
1: diet's pretty popular in several places. That's the uh, Pritkin
0: diet, Pritkin diet as well. So he's doing these two things, which is like, all right, let me change my diet. Let me take let me take benzodiazepines. Then his wife, um, you know, on his rise, continued satellite rising to fame his wife was diagnosed with cancer which they thought was terminal so he canceled a lot of his speaking engagements and kind of went off the map and he started taking a lot more he upped his um, benzodiazepine intake to a much larger dose because he was feeling um, now he explains he was feeling suicidal he was deeply deeply depressed and um, he wasn't
1: out doing his many positive things either
0: exactly he stopped the things that he knew to be helping him in his life and giving him a sense of purpose, and and the his wife is his wife. I mean, this guy's wife is his wife and his best friend and his tour manager, and they do everything together. So he, like any good loving relationship, if something happens to her, it's something that's really happening to him as well. So you might think it's kind of a standard response to a tragedy like that, but. Somewhere along the way, um, he decided that these bouts of horrible depression, suicidality, he remembered when he used to kind of feel like that, similarly to how AOC was saying, Well, I'm, I, this traumatic people are trying to kill me right now, kind of reminds me of the similar feelings as when I was abused when I was younger. I think J- Jordan Peterson is, was saying, Uh oh, here comes this suicidality kind of feeling again. And he related it back to, you know, this chemical, what what do you call it? Uh, This this abstract biological brain thing that he has Mm -hmm. that gives him depression. I don't think he's, I mean, maybe he would say it out loud, but I don't think he's he's connecting the dots that who wouldn't feel this way if something horrible like this was happening. So he was attributing the depression suicidality to just a condition he's born with plus benzodiazepines. Um,
1: Although, like AOC, there was an object. I mean, he was being reached. Something bad was happening to him. Yes, having a negative reaction to being threatened, to being killed, or having your best friend and life partner dying—kind
0: of understandable, right? So he he was thinking the. the colonopins, the benzodiazepines are really making me feel this way. So I need to get off of them. So his whole thing was like, it wasn't so much the build yourself up kind of stance that he takes when he talks to people who are nihilistic and at their, you know, at their worst, he was thinking like the first order of business for him was to get off these drugs. And then he can kind of sort himself out rather than let me sort myself out and, see if these, I need these drugs to help me or what, however else you might want to do it. So he was drug focused. And when he tried to get himself off of these drugs, he was going through, as you know, benzodiazepines and alcohol are quite dangerous sometimes to, to uh, just quit cold Turkey. They can cause seizures and even death and some experience. And we should
1: point out, we say it every time, And I'm going to be talking about it when I talk about the genetic thing. The Life Process Program is based on the fact that the best predictors of who overcomes addiction are people who are successfully married, who are educated, who are doing well economically, who are feeling good about themselves. The more positives people have going for them, the better they are at overcoming addictions, even when they're not exactly thinking about overcoming addictions.
0: Right. Which is what happens, and and that in the government data that we cite all the time too is people are overcoming their addictions, and they're not all people who are trying to go get help and overcome them. They're people who sort of mostly gain they don't get access help. to life, right?
1: So this is a little bit technical. I was at a famous conference about self cure of addictions. It went into a big volume. Klingerman's the editor. I was one of the people there, and believe it or not, George Valiant was there. Um, there are two great ways of studying natural recovery. One way of studying natural recovery is to put an ad in the paper and say, if you've got no over-addiction, contact me. Mm-hmm. And the other way of studying natural recovery is to do surveys with people. And at one point, they're addicted, they're dependent by measures. And the next time, when you interview them, they're not dependent. And you get two totally different answers. The people who say, oh, I overcame an addiction... They sound like people, even if they didn't go to AA, who think that way. Right. Moderation management meetings are bear certain similarities to AA. With people who like go along in life, when they would contact them and say, "Can you tell us how you got over your addiction?" They say, "What addiction?" And he said, "Well, you know, you were drinking twelve drinks a day, you know, ten years ago," and he said, "Oh yeah, they'll say." That was bad. Uh, uh, you know, I stopped drinking so much. They don't have a theory of overcoming addiction. They had a life emerge.
0: That was really valuable. That's a really cool way of putting it. You, When you're asked, um, hey, have you come, overcome an addiction and you're the kind of person who wants to speak up, it's almost like you're forced to tell a sexy story about it, right? And But if you're being surveyed, about your relationship with, say, drugs, you're going to be more straightforward and not try to dress it up so much. And like you say, some people are just going to say, oh, I had an addiction? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you're going to think about your life. I mean,
1: uh, I mean, another way that
0: uh,
1: Ocasio-Cortez, she's thinking about her life for the most part. And then she's she was stuck in a basement office where people were trying to kill her. She got a little off track for five alone in a room with the lights out for five hours. Your mind goes in bad directions, but her life is generally about living her life. Right. That's the best thing a human being can do, and it's sort of a funny thing that we're saying we have a life process program. You know, the best thing you can do, we're talking with you, we're trying to help you, you've come to us for help, is to live your life. That's the
0: single best thing you can do. So, AOC was life-first trauma in the back of our mind. And Jordan Peterson, in this case, is sort of, well, he's kind of undergoing several traumatic events at once, but his focus is okay, what do I get rid of first to make me feel better? Let's get rid of the drugs. So every doctor he went to, because they were worried about the effects that you know completely just getting off the drug might have, they wanted, as is pretty standard, to taper him off. But he didn't want to wait. He was thinking, well, I need to get off these drugs now. So he wanted to be just drug-free. He went, because no one would do that. No one in Canada or the U.S., would do that so he went to russia where they'll just do what you want they put him in a drug induced coma and did a rapid detox from the drugs so after that he was out of commission i mean for an entire year he says he's come back because he was able to he was partway through writing his book at around that time his wife uh miraculously made a full recovery huh. so that's a, that's been a boon he
1: was worried about something got addicted and went into a medically induced coma and the thing he was worried
0: about got better sorted itself out not that that's a typical thing to happen but yeah luckily so his wife is still in total remission um so he was at it but he was his health was so bad after that he still has tremors and bouts of anxiety and um, things to deal with. And Has it hurt just... his
1: career? I mean, are people less willing to listen to his good advice now, or how
0: we've got to see? Because I think he just published his next book, and so we'll see what happens. But he's certainly not, I mean, I guess because of COVID, no one's doing this, but he's not really as active anymore. Once in a while, he'll do an interview here and there. Um, but you know, I could imagine that his wife having that hard of a time and then she recovered and then he doesn't go into a drug induced coma that he might just kind of bounce back. I don't know, but I would imagine that the reason he's not bouncing back and that he's still people don't hear from him all so often is because, you know, he did this to himself and I don't know what the procedure was like, but don't you think that if he tapered himself off of, first of all, I kind of want to know, if benzodia this might be split the crowd here, but if benzodiazepines were working to get him through certain periods of his life, and I don't know, maybe they weren't, wouldn't you think why would you really need to stop taking them at that moment? And on the other hand, if he really wanted to get off of them and he tapered off of them, I could I would guess that he probably wouldn't be having <laughs> tremors and uh be worried about seizures at this point. Well, I don't didn't you if you had a very
1: bad experience with heroin and fentanyl didn't you sort of not quit right away but you yeah. kind of got off the concept of heroin and if somebody were describing it they would say you were tapering but you didn't know enough to taper exactly you took less and then you were younger
0: yeah yeah you, you got hit normal. it on the head yeah exactly i took less i was worried about the potential of dying so I thought, you know, what's the right amount for me to take that I get some positive experience, but I could still be careful. And then it kind of turned out that, as you say, life got in the way, luckily. And I thought more about that than heroin. Although so,
1: there's some people that take heroin for a really long time. And I mean, yeah. that's the new revelation. I mean, Carl Hart, you interviewed. Mm. Uh, You know, and and Will's doing this on Filter, you know, people take drugs. And that's what Carl Hart says. We have to have people reveal. We know people take drugs. We do these national surveys and people are taking drugs. Um, And very few of them show up in treatment. And very few of them are impaired and distressed by them. They're coming to grips with them, but we don't recognize that that's one possible outcome right and he felt for whatever reason maybe it was negative experiences i don't know that he had to quit them entirely i know a pretty famous guy i can't use all the stories i know by name i know a pretty famous guy who was a famous meth freak and he went to jail and he drinks now so he uses that as an argument against you know the disease theory but one night when we went out for dinner, he said to me, Well, you know, when I'm really going to a big meeting and I have something to do, you know, I still take some Ritalin or something, which is the same chemical structure as meth. Yeah. yeah. I said, You know, that's a little more interesting than the fact that you used to be a meth head freak and you went to prison and now you drink. The fact that you still take meth like amphetamines. He said, Well, I can't tell anybody that. And I said,
0: Right. Well, Speaking of not being able to tell anybody that practical truth. So Peterson all in the spotlight. And then all of a sudden not people want to know what was going on. So he's come back and he's st- now he adds content to his YouTube channel and gave this explanation that I just gave to you. Maybe he would say it a little bit differently. I don't know. Um, and the press jumped on that. And of course you can guess what they want to say about this. It's the benzodiazepines fault. And so the, the tagline and so many different titles and and um and documents and articles that are written and videos that are made is that you know benzodiazepines the secret or the hidden epidemic this is the independent national post daily mail um several youtube channels and uh radio hosts that pride themselves on being critical thinkers now you know
1: that's been done there was a famous bestseller written by a woman i'm dancing as fast as i can which revealed Mm. her benzodiazepine addiction. okay. This is now 30 years ago. Yeah. And everybody said, oh, my God, you know, tranquilizers can be addictive. Of course, millions of people were taking tranquilizers. So, like, everything else can be addictive. And she became addicted. Uh, Her name was Gordon. But for a lot of people, they
0: aren't. And even if this isn't – I mean, even if this is done before – Under the benzodiazepine tag, this has been done before, as you know. This is done every year, every decade with some different kind of drug. So even um, Robert Whitaker, who I've interviewed before, and I really like Robert Whitaker. He's wrote Nat in America and Anatomy of an Epidemic, where he says uh, psychiatrists always want to prescribe drugs. But, you know, it's more than, first of all, drugs can do you some harm if you're taking them and you don't have the right relationship with them. But on the other hand, um, in in addition to that, you want to sort your life issues out in a more practical, maybe therapeutic kind of a way. This is his argument, more of a therapeutic way. Um, So let's stop, let's quit thinking glorifying drugs or demonizing drugs. But Robert Whitaker's interviewed on some of these channels, and he's saying he's feeding into the benzodiazepine is a hidden epidemic. And his whole thing is just like with opioids, in the past 10 years, he says, well, doctors are over prescribing them. And so it's just the new opioid epidemic. Is uh, He's a great
1: guy, Robert Whitaker And by the way, there's a new uh, uh, the history of addiction on their website, Man in America, yeah. which, you know, uh, a man I know named Gallagher, and it gives a good burst about my work. So Robert Whittaker's go- done a valuable service. He is a drug yeah. determinist, you yes. know, and even man yes. in America. It's about, well, psychiatric drugs are bad for you because they ruin your brain. He is a, he's a pretty reductive guy. I mean, his background mm. is journalism, not medicine. So, so I, I do find myself drawing back when I hear his him tell stories a lot of times. Right.
0: So here we go again. We have a brilliant individual who knows better than to get lost and in- standard stories but he can't help throw all of his knowledge out the window in favor of the easy story that the drug is causing problems so we already kind of went through some of this but i just want to put a tag in for what we believe the life process program in relation to this story we may have already done it maybe i might even cut it out we'll see but for one people often believe that benzos or other antidepressants are uh Necessary in order to get rid of their anxiety or depression, and we say, "Okay, take drugs and put that option on the table." Especially if they help you, take drugs, and if they give you benefit, why would we? Say and we would throw speed drugs in
1: the pile too—meth,
0: yeah.
1: amphetamines, and coke. There's right. kind we, of the, We
0: wouldn't. We wouldn't make the distinction between they need to be prescribed. Or but not. those are all drugs safe. that are
1: all—all all of them are increasing deaths now.
0: Yeah. Uh, but we don't think they're going to solve your problems on the basis that they're fixing wiring in the brain. And that's just a, that's something crucial that people can't, they can't get to that other side of the equation sometimes. And we acknowledge that people can become addicted to any drugs and withdrawals from benzodiazepines could certainly be deadly, but that doesn't make them especially insidious. I wouldn't say, I mean, the withdrawals from alcohol could be deadly and that's alcohol sold legally in stores everywhere. I, You know, during the pandemic, I was so happy that I could get a much larger dose of alcohol than I'd been taking in the previous months. So the big difference between the two is just that one's prescribed as medicine and the others sold legally in the market in grocery stores. And most people still have no problem with alcohol. And if they run into problems, they kick the problems. Um, And we, uh, yeah. We have a general...
1: The thing that nobody can explain, uh, This is a, I'm taking a little bit of this material from um, um, the other session I'm going to do for my YouTube session. Um, <clears throat> we're doing worse with addiction all the time. I, deaths are now up to 82,000, that's the latest figure annually. They've increased steadily since the year 2000. The Brain Disease Theory was published in 1997, Nora Volko headed the NIDA in 2003, and the Drug Policy Alliance was created in the year 2000. All of our focus on addiction, all that we learn about addiction, um, um, it's hurting us. So I'm just going to read, this is, for, this is Nora Volko. What, Nora Volko has become tremendously de- defensive. Um, and she's trying to explain why most people who take drugs don't become addicted and why most people over- outgrow it. With the brain, and she's defending the brain disorder model within the larger biosocial psychosocial framework, captures better than other models, such as those that focus on addiction as a learned behavior, is a crucial dimension of inter-individuality individual biological variability to make some people more susceptible than others to this hijacking. Many people try drugs, but most do not start to use compulsively or develop an addiction. Studies are identifying gene variants that confer resilience or risk for addiction, as well as environmental factors in life. But that leaves out the main thing about addiction, which she also talks about elsewhere with all those bio factors making people addicted, how come people overcome addiction mm-hmm. regularly? And the, one guy who does that statistically is a man named Gene Heyman. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the fact that <clears throat> the same percentage of people quit addiction at every phase, fa- most quit because they're most are addicted or dependent in their twenties. Well, the famous people we know You know, Maya Salovitz and Mark Lewis, you know, they got done by their 20s or or when they're 30. But whoever's remaining, the same number drops off all along. Um, You can't explain that genetically. Heyman, the correlates of quitting include the absence of additional psychiatric and medical problems, marital status, singles stay addicted longer economic pressures fear of judicial sanctions concern about respect from children and other family members hard to find a gene for that worries about the many problems that attend regular involvements in illegal activities more years spent in school and higher income i mean you know uh peterson got over his addiction and he's a guy who would get over his addiction because he had so many positives going for him. Mm. They are not correlates of recovery from the D's addiction is said to be, such as they're not those when people get over. Uh, you don't get over Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer because you have a good marriage, um, more education, uh, better works skills um, and because you're trying to gain the respect of your children right um, they're trying to fit you know wh- what my talk on YouTube is going to be I- I'm start I'm beginning to refer to it as the big lie the-, <laughs> the disease theory is the big lie about addiction I'm liking it explicitly to the big lie that Trump to- and his co- colleagues told about him not losing the election, it has negative consequences. Conceiving of addiction as a disease that's bred into you genetically. That's what Volko's saying. And to some extent, that's what Peterson's saying. And, or it's maintained by the drug itself. It has negative consequences and we're seeing the
0: negative consequences. We, like Carl Hardy, who just wrote that book, he, the ta- His slogan is very well put. Drugs aren't the problem. I mean, of course, you would like to go on to say, well, what is the problem? And we should be talking about that. But at least, suffice it to say, drugs aren't. And relationships with drugs maybe could be a problem. And over-reliance on a drug instead of, you know, reliance on your own skills. And Gene Heyman's laying out all, all the things
1: that cause the problem. Well... If you don't have intimate relationships, if you don't have an education, if you don't feel good about yourself, if you have emotional problems, uh, if you know, you're not getting the respect of your children. And we're saying those are the things that naturally, to some extent, you're going to address and that we're in Life Process Program going to help you address.
0: Drug addiction and an addiction is always the result of a lack of an engagement with life. And
1: it's a lack of connection to life and a lack of engagement. And sometimes, as with Peterson, that's his name, right? Peterson? Mm -hmm. It can happen to people who previously have not, have been doing okay. The the most famous case of depression in America for a long time uh, was a novelist. And he wrote a book about, that darkness that beset him. Um, um, He wrote Sophie's Choice. He had never been depressed. He drank regularly every night. listened to classic music, classical music. And then for reasons he said in the book um, that had nothing to do with like his worrying about alcohol. he, He had to quit drinking with some kind of physical reaction. And he immediately fell into a tremendously deep depression. So people have a way of organizing their lives that works for them. They're productive. Um, And then sometimes they do fall off a ditch or they fall into a problem. It can happen to the best of us.
0: Let me just end here. I'd say the moral of Peterson's whole story here for us besides what we will add about life engagement and how maybe he could have reacted in a positive way or what maybe would have happened if he let things play out a little bit, even great psychologists, brilliant minds, Gary Anderson, as you've mentioned, um, they'll abandon their best thinking when it comes to drugs and they can't help but recite standard drugs or, you know, uh, drug addict people stories. They recite them to to themselves to the extent that they create narratives around themselves that are actually self-fulfilling in a negative way, and they recite them to the public. And they do it because it's just too hard to root out complex problems in a truthful way, even though really the ameliorative factor of when you overcome an addiction is just basic common sense and pro-social life. And of course, it's just too easy to tell fairy tales and simple stories so and we love medical solutions but the person yeah. i was
1: talking about was william styron and the book was called hmm. darkness visible a memoir of man, uh, madness. It was written first edition it was 1990 um we lo- have more in america than more than anywhere else we like to feel there's a medical solution for every problem and that's the real science of it so i think we've done about an hour on this let's yeah, let's I think summed just, it up nicely. And you wrote it back into the uh, bailiwick of where we talk about it.
0: Yeah. So let's sign off on this one. We'll create another video, which I'm actually, I'll link to at the end here. So I wanted to say to everybody, uh, including AOC and Jordan Peterson, we wish them well and a happy Sunday.